Hey, welcome, welcome, everybody. It is the Monday, February 20th edition of Talkback. And Talkback is brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, offering residential and commercial cleaning. And no job is too big or small. If you'd like a free estimate, here's the number, 260-6617, 406, of course. And also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, authentic New York bagels and pastries all the way from Little Italy can be found right here in Missoula at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, located on North Reserve. All right, welcome everybody. Glad to have you along. It is it, it is talk back for this Monday. I am Peter Christian. You may not remember me. <laughs> yeah, who are you? <laughs> I have been ill. I was ill in quite a few days last week uh, with uh, all sorts of wonderful issues. But we're back. We are back. We, we are live. Yes, so everyone are. that was concerned that yes. Talkback might have been replaced, we will have normal programming tomorrow. Yes. You'll be back yes. on Montana Morning tomorrow. That's, That's not gone. So yeah, yeah we we should be. Back in the fold here. Absolutely. All right. So, but we are we are on a special edition of Talkback this morning. It's the KGVO Monthly Book Club, and uh, professors Michael Mayer and Mirdad Kia are joining us. Mirdad on the phone, Michael here in the studio. And gentlemen, you take great pains in choosing these books. Uh, the the conversations have been extraordinarily uh, uh, you know vibrant uh, over the last several months. Uh, with Eisenhower and, and where we've been with other some of these other books. But what, what, what are we studying today? Well, we're, we're looking at uh, James McWhorter's book, Woke Racism. Uh, the subtitle is How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. And McWhorter's an interesting figure. He's, he's actually a linguist. He studies wow. languages and is a specialist in Creole languages. Creole languages are languages that are a combination of two languages that form a separate third language. He has a Ph.D. in linguistics from Stanford. He taught at Berkeley and since 2008 has been a professor at Columbia. And he describes himself um, not as a conservative but as, quote, a cranky liberal Democrat. And um, he's written two books on race before this, though. One was called Losing the Race, which was – the subtitle was uh, Self-Sabotage in Black America. And in that, he argued that culture or ideology could – work against success for a group, an ethnic group or a racial group, which is a theme we talked about in Hillbilly Elegy, Vance's book. Um, And he argued in that book that the cult of victimology, the cult of separatism, the cult of anti-intellectualism worked against success um, in the black community. He points to the acting white syndrome, that uh, doing well in school is acting white. And that obviously, if that's your culture, that's, that's going to argue against uh, success. And L- uh, Vance talked about the same thing among uh, his hillbilly cohort. Um, uh, in Authentically Black, uh, a second book, a collection of essays, he elaborated on those themes. Uh, and he wrote, uh, culture internal ideologies can hobble a group from taking advantage of pathways to success. And uh, another thing that he argues worked against success was the idea that unequal outcomes were always due to unequal opportunities. Um, this book is takes things a little bit different. It looks at a more at at people and I, and the ideology that that is the problem rather than um, looking at, at at the concerns. And in this, he argues that woke ideas are essentially a kind of religious fanaticism, or he calls it religious fundamentalism. Right, right. Um, he calls adherents the elect, because that's the way they regard themselves. And he compares cancel culture to uh, excommunication or uh, burning heretics. 
And so it is. So it is somewhat like a religion going all the way back to the Middle yeah, Ages. Yeah, and and um, he he offers examples. Uh, he, he starts with a series of examples, and he he talks about the case of the dean of nursing at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, and she wrote a piece uh, in 2020. She wrote, "I am writing to express my concern in condemnation of the recent and past acts of violence against people of color." Recent events recall a tragic history of racism and bias that continue to thrive in this country. Black lives matter, but also everyone's life matters. And for that, um, that, that last line, uh, she was fired without be- being given a chance even to defend herself. And McWhorter asked, what kind of people do these things? And his answer is um, religious fanatics, people who adhere to a doctrine based on faith rather than evidence or rational arguments. Uh, this requires, as he says, a certain suspension of disbelief. Um, and he argues that as the West moved away from religion towards secularism, there have been a series of ideology, um, Marxism, psychology, uh, that have replaced it. Um, in this case, he talks about the creed of, of the elite, which is anti-racism. The clergy, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, and their desire to seek to ban the heretic. And he writes, it's imperative not only to critique those who disagree with this creed, but to seek their punishment and elimination to whatever degree real-life conditions can accommodate. So they, they, we don't let them burn us yet, the heretics, but they, they, they can fire people and uh, make their lives miserable. Um, and I, I was struck with that argument because um, – Anthony Beaver, who's a, a, a British historian, wrote has, has a new book out on Russia, uh, the Revolution and, and Civil War, and he he asks where did the what he calls the extremes of sadism come from in the Russian Revolution? He cites quote. Mm-hmm. Hacking with sabers, cutting with knives, boiling and burning, scalping alive, nailing of epaulets to shoulders, gouging of eyes, soaking of victims in waters to freeze them to death, castration, evisceration, amputation. And he, he says, you know, th- this – frenzy of, of, of violence, as he calls it, um, had in, intensified to another level by the rhetoric of political hatred. Lenin, Lenin demonized those uh, of the wrong social class as, quote, lice, fleas, vermin. Um, and he, that's t- tantamount to calling for an eradication of the class. And Beaver writes, Europe had not seen such conspicuous cruelty used as a weapon of terror since the wars of revolution. And he says the Bolsheviks were a kind of millenarian creed. They were fighting a religious war. And it's very similar to McWhorter's analysis. And um, I think uh, th- there's a, a good bit more in there, but I think I'll leave it. And Merida, do you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think uh, you said it all. I, I basically think that... Uh, McWhorter's, uh, you know, sort of critique is uh, sort of focusing on this sense of victimology and separatism and also anti-intellectualism, which uh, have underlied the, you know, uh, at least a certain segment of the African-American community's response to all race-related issues. And uh, he is basically, I I was struck by this sentence, it's time for well-intentioned whites to stop pardoning as understandable, in quotation, the worst of human nature whenever black people exhibit it. Uh, So uh, that's one criticism that he, he wages. The other one that I find it very interesting 
is um, he's basically um, arguing that this anti-racism has become as harmful in the United States as racism itself, uh, and uh, that uh, he criticizes in a very direct fashion these terms like microaggression, uh, as well as uh, what he regards as the overly casual conflation of racial bias with white supremacy. Uh, and, uh, um, and, of course, one of his targets is uh, uh, Robin DiAngelo's uh, 2018 book, White Fragility. And uh, we can come to that after the break and talk about that as well. You bet. Now, phone lines are open, by the way. uh, 406-721-1290 is our number. This is TalkBack. It's the KGVO Book Club. Good to be back. And we will be right back with more, hopefully, your phone calls in a moment. Hey, we are back. This is Talk Back. Uh, I'm Peter Christian. Nick Christensen over there waiting to take your phone calls. It's the KGVO Book Club special edition of, uh, of Talk Back this morning. We do this once a month. Uh, doctors Michael Mayer and Mirdad Kia joining us this morning. We're talking about a book called Woke Racism, and uh, we're just beginning our discussion. So, gentlemen, let's continue. Uh, Mayor, Michael, you... Oh, okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are a, a couple of arguments that he makes that are worth considering. Um, he, he maintains that uh, advocates of anti-racism promulgate what he calls an obsessive, self-involved, totalitarian, and utterly unnecessary kind of cultural pre-programming. Um, and he, he argues that our society is changing, but not out of consensus, out of fear. And this fear is uh, achieved by calling heretics people who don't agree with this ideology racist, and most people aren't racist and really don't like being called racist. It hurts. It's a, it's about the worst thing you can call somebody in our society, except maybe a pedophile. And um, so that, that's that's a it's a very effective weapon both for silencing and for um, uh, expelling people who don't agree. Oh, we do have a caller on the line right now. Uh, Mr. Wingnut is joining us. Mr. Nutt, good morning. You're on TalkBack. Hi. Well, good morning. I'm glad to hear Peter is doing better. Uh, Thank you. I I hope I have the time and the ability to express what I've thought over the course of reading this book. And, you know, at first number of chapters, I found myself um, focused on John McWhorter's, what I regard as a misunderstanding of Christianity and perhaps his religion in the larger context. Although I found his suggestions how to address woke racism quite very interesting. Um, But I decided I'm going to focus on a short paragraph on page uh, 170 that Dr. McWhorter references a letter that was written to him by a friend. And to preface that, you know, here a couple of weeks ago, you know, before I had gotten to this part of uh, John McWhorter's book, we had a guest who was clearly one of John McWhorter's elect, as he uh, describes them. And he was discussing George Washington's history about slavery, uh, you know, which worked into his slavery and then eventually into the 1619 Project which McWhorter talks about on page 108 and 109 of his book. Uh, so I called into that show to present two viewpoints. Uh, first was, is it ultimately better to spend time worrying about the immutable past, or is it better to spend time and energy towards correcting the current ongoing slavery, human trafficking, organ harvesting, 
That's going on in the world today. And the second point was, is it healthier and more fruitful to focus our attention on positive things that are true, honest, and, and good than to focus on the negative and the immutable autocracies of the past, which all mankind has been part of? Hey, but, but during my call, I made the serious error of resorting to using biblical scripture to express those viewpoints. But following that conversation, uh, which didn't go well, I had what I regard as an epiphany. And what occurred to me is that during my wife's sojourn into the abyss of dementia, she would talk to me in Korean. And she was completely oblivious to the fact that she was speaking Korean and that I could not understand why. She couldn't understand why I couldn't understand her. Uh, and I could reassure her that I don't understand Korean. But it was completely oblivious. She would continue to try to communicate with me in Korean. And the epiphany that occurred to me is that my using Scripture to talk to a secular audience in, let's say, uh, metaphorically, a foreign language was just not going to happen. So, and the result of that epiphany is I decided that I it was I was at fault, and I need, needed to resolve how to express my viewpoints in secular terms with a secular audience. So, therefore, after that epiphany, instead of talking about Dr. McWhorter's view on Christianity and religion. I wanted to focus on that brief paragraph on page 170, and it has three, to me, essential points. We all have inherent subconscious biases. Um, where we devote our time and our energy, worrying about our subconscious biases, or using our rational thoughts to overcome those uh, inherent biases. And again, secondly, is it better to worry about the mutable past or work torched and changing to you know, the things that exist today and in the future. And lastly, do we want to feed our minds on the bad of the past, on the good things that can be done today? Well said, sir. Um, and I hate to do this. We're going to have to let you go because we're up against a break. But we appreciate, really, that those, uh, those, those thoughts. We appreciate that. We'll come back and talk about them when we return. Uh, phone lines are open at 721-1290. Again, this is the KGVO Book Club. Uh, professors Michael Mayer, Mirdad Kia joining us. We'll be back right after this. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's 23 minutes past the hour. This is Talk Back, and of course, it's the KGVO Book Club. We're talking about James McWhorter's Woke Racism. And joining us here in the studio this morning, we have Dr. Michael Mayer on the phone, Dr. Mirdad Kia, and we have folks who want to visit with you on the phone. So, gentlemen, I believe Helena is on the line right now. Good morning, Helena. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I thought this would be an opportune time, since we have two historians um, with us, to ask um, how what I have always perceived since I started thinking about American history as kind of an undercurrent of piety in our founding. We, we were founded by Puritans, right, originally. And there's always seemed to me that there's this undercurrent of piety, showcasing personal piety, um, in some of our actions when we're, I'm, I'm interested in the fact that authors have earlier looked at um, as organized religion declines in attendance and adherence, that its place is taken by this kind of um, 
these movements or, or social movements that showcase um, personal piety. I'm just wondering if your um, guests could comment on that history in our, in our culture, that undercurrent, and whether it plays any role in what seems like uh, an extreme adherence to any sort of thing that comes along that where we can showcase this piety. I hope that makes some sense. Um, thank you very much for taking my question. You bet. Uh, thanks, Helen. Thanks for the call, gentlemen. Yeah, that that is it's an interesting observation, and it raises um, some points that historians have debated for many, many, many years. Uh, and I think that's there's certainly more than a small element of truth in that when you talk about New England, which was settled by Puritans and Pilgrims and and um, people dis- basically dissenting Protestants. But um, it's probably a little less true of the middle colonies and the South. The middle colonies, uh, Maryland was uh, a Catholic colony. Um, the uh, Virginia was uh, Anglican and you know, so official Church of England. So there's a little bit less of that emphasis on personal piety, although the Great Awakening brought, uh, and brought that, that emphasis on personal piety and, and demonstrating that to certainly to Virginia, Reese Isaac's work, if anybody's interested um, in following up on that, is, is brilliant about the connection between um, evangelical Protestantism and dissenting politics in Virginia in the run-up to the, to the American Revolution. He's a terrific historian. So I, I, th- I think it's, 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 it's a very good point. But again, to, for some people, it is, it is a means of, of demonstration. And right around where Mr. Nutt was calling, um, there was a um, – uh, uh, McWhorter made a, a, an observation. He, he writes, the elect are our Pharisees. In fostering anti-racist ideas that actually harm black people, they are obsessed with the letter of the law rather than its spirit – and their prosecution of sinners contrasts with Jesus' embrace of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. In, in, interesting, interesting that parallel, gentlemen. Uh, that yeah. one of the things that people I know uh, feel very uncomfortable about sometimes is the, is the very concept of religion in, in public life, right? You know, uh, one thing that... But, but go that ahead, Mirna, please. Wanna, I wanted to, yeah, just jump in and... Say this. I mean, on, on my just uh, own uh, sort of daily interaction, I have felt more and more, and this is very troubling, that there is a sense of uh, fear and shame uh, that um, has been created uh, among many, even our students, to speak about these issues because they're afraid that they might utter the wrong ed- adjective or the wrong vocabulary, or the wrong grammar, however you want to put it, and they might offend somebody as a result, or it might be construed as them being insensitive, or God forbid, racist, or whatever. And you know what this does, this sense of shame and fear about even speaking and asking questions, because you cannot get anywhere without asking questions, is that people basically self-censor. And this self-censorship, you know, and uh, instead of actually addressing issues, confronting issues, learning about issues, uh, we have basically silenced uh, people who might sound, you know, insensitive or use the wrong vocabulary or whatever it may be called at any given point. And as a result, we have blocked the process of learning. 
because learning does not happen without stumbling, without making mistakes, without being confronted, challenged, interacting with other ideas and so on and so forth. So uh, it is, it is, I'm sorry to say this, and I don't know how to put it, but it, it is really a sort of a religious attitude, and not religious in the sense that I understand spirituality, but in a sense of a dogmatic sense of looking at things that prohibits, in fact, uh, the free exchange of ideas. And this is very alarming, very alarming. And it, it actually has resemblances. I have to say this. Uh, we were talking with Mike yesterday. It has resemblances with some very, very totalitarian mode of thinking. I, I can see resemblances of that in Soviet Union and Stalinism. I see resemblances of that in uh, Maoism in China. You know, uh, they, they were basically, they had, you had to be corrected when you spoke. Uh, and uh, if you misspoke about anything, uh, you know, uh, you had to go to, you know, uh, uh, re-education camps. You know, we don't want to go in that direction. Uh, we want to maintain a free flow of ideas, interaction, and critical thinking for our students uh, to, to, to learn about historical issues and become more educated and more enlightened. Gentlemen, we're up against a break. When we come back, um, I, in lieu of calls, we don't have any other calls, a question I want to ask both of you, because you are, uh, uh, Michael just recently retired, but Mirdad, you're still very active within the uh, uh, within the uh, educational community at the University of Montana. I want to ask you, what is the atmosphere on campus? Is there an atmosphere of a free exchange of ideas where people feel powerful enough and confirmed enough to be able to stand in the public square and say what they th- they think or feel without, without a feeling like they're going to be either excommunicated, if you will, using a religious term, from the campus, or, and it doesn't have to be religious items. It, it could be almost any topic. Uh, if there seems to be, a, a, as you mentioned, a very narrow dogma where you're, you're allowed to say what, what that is the current correctness, right? And if you go yeah. beyond that, you're out. And so I, I want to talk about that if, if we, in lieu of calls. Is that all right? It sounds good. We'll, we'll talk about that when we return with more of Talk Back right after this. Okay, we do have uh, callers on the line, but real, real quickly, gentlemen, uh, Michael and Mirdad, you're on campus every day. I wanted to ask you, what is the atmosphere on campus right now? Is uh, are, are people walking around in uh, in a spirit of fear and trembling, hoping they won't say the wrong thing and, and be ousted or, you know, what, you know, <laughs> thrown out or, or whatever it might be, or excluded from social activities? Yeah, I, I think there there are concerns about that. There is kind of an orthodoxy that uh, that um, that is informally enforced, and sometimes formally. And for example, there was there was a proposal last fall, uh, not this past fall, the, the one before, um, on the part of the administration to require a DEI statement on every syllabus. And um, I, I objected at the time, and uh, and still you would. Explain, Mike, yeah. what the uh, yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Ah. And um, what what that 
I mean, let's say it's a violation, first of all, of, of, of the First Amendment, which as a state institution, we're bound by a the state, 14th, a state which funded, incorporates yeah, state the, the funded first. institution. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so th there's a problem there. But there's also a problem with academic freedom more generally. Let's say you had a political scientist who sincerely believed or whose own research led him to the conclusion um, that affirmative action was not effective in promoting the interest of min minorities or, in fact, um, injured minorities or was diverse, uh, reverse discrimination. And so that puts that professor in a very awkward position because that professor would either have to teach against what the statement that was on the syllabus or, um, or, or silence himself right. uh, or herself. And so I, I, think, I think that sort of thing, uh, in, in, well-intentioned in, in many cases, uh, is, is a real problem. Merida, what do you think? No, I, th I think I don't want to generalize. I only know, you know, um, a very small segment of the student population. Um, my former students, my present students, I talked to some of them about these issues. Uh, so I don't want to you know, apply this to the rest of the campus. But I do feel that there is, and it's very interesting in this context because everybody talks about, you know, the uh, diminishing of interest in humanities and so on and so forth and social sciences. Um, not only because uh, these fields uh, provide lower salaries after you graduate, but it's also the impact of this kind of um, wokeism, which basically has made study of the past more or less irrelevant. Uh, ancient Greeks, sexist, racist, uh, ageist, you know, the uh, ancient Romans, sexist, <laughs> ageist, uh, racist, ancient Persians, Indians, Chinese. You know, why do we even study them? Because we already know that they were evil because they were all racist and sexist and ageist and da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, this is the level of absurdity we have arrived, that there is a sense of uh, pride, you know, and I have to say partially a false pride, that we have reached the zenith of correctness. You know, yeah. we don't have any of these issues, but the ancients did, but the medieval you know, societies did, so on and so forth. So what is the worth of studying anything as long as we know that they don't have anything to offer because they were evil, because they exploited, they uh, suppressed, they discriminated, and so on and so forth. You see, what has happened is that it takes away the value of knowledge, and it turns it into such an orthodoxy. And again, I go back to what it is, that in, in uh, you know, and I don't want to, you know, overstate this, but, you know, it, it came down to the point that, uh, you know, in some country, if you only read the writings of the leader, you were in good shape because you would not repeat the mistakes of the past. No, we don't want to go in that direction. The study of the past is extremely important for understanding our own society and its pitfalls and its problems, and so on and so forth. So I think it has given us a sense of false comfort in our own correctness about everything and a denunciation of anything that precedes us. You know, especially that, I think Meredith's point is, is, is a really important one, because this sense that um, 
the past can only be mine to show that they're they're somehow either inferior or um, or, or morally well, deficient. We have nothing to learn from them. A- exactly, but right. it also gives a sense that there's only one way of looking at the world. Right. There, there. It. One of the things history can and offer. By the way, sorry, Mike. I, yeah. I'm I'm interrupting you. I apologize. But it's also sorry to say this. But it's also a form of racism. Because these are non-American societies, yeah. right? And they are pre-modern. So uh, what do Americans have anything to learn from them? Nothing, basically. Now, is, isn't that dis- dismissive, in fact? Isn't that being ignorant about other cultures and dismissing them right off the bat? Well, it's very arrogant. studying them. It's very, yeah. yeah, very so arrogant It's as very well. interesting. Yeah. It, it, it is. And it, the, one of the, as, I was, as, as I was saying, one of the things you learn from the past is that not everybody views the world the way that you view the world. Um, and that it's not just that people of different cultures and different societies view the world differently, understand the world differently from the way we do, but our own ancestors did. Even yeah, some of our yeah. own fairly recent ancestors did. Let, let's try to get one more call in before the break. Harry's been waiting the longest. Harry, first of all, thank you for your patience. You're on. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, yeah good morning. Yeah, um, I got so many thoughts going through my mind. But uh, just start off, the, the use, use of these words... Uh, he's, I think, uh, well, he's saying cancel culture, woke. To me, those are just as, bud, as much buzzwords as, you know, white uh, supremacy and racism. Uh, it's, it's, I, I, I sh- uh, it's really, uh, to me, it, it uh, questions what, what his point is. But also, I can understand, though, that he's right that, you know, there's certain factors that, well, the, the old adage of the man with the hammer, a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So these people who, have racists on their mind. Everything is a racist cause, you know, cause or problem. But then also, uh, I, I hope I try to get my mind straight here. Uh, this looking back through history, this cancel culture thing is—it's nothing new. I mean, uh, this, you know, if in the 50s you talked about communism, you could you would lose your uh, whole livelihood. I mean, you could be canceled completely. Further back, you know, if you the look at said anything. Huh? Uh, the Red Menace. Yeah, the go ahead. Red yeah. Menace. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You go further back. If you spoke out against the first uh, First World War, they threw you in jail. I mean, so it's you know they really were canceled. So I mean, it's uh, and and also this the I, right now that the cancel culture business is. I think it's a small portion. I mean, in the real life, most people don't worry about this stuff. I, in colleges, maybe uh, on on uh, TV, you know, Hollywood. But average people, you know, other than you know, get to everybody's uh, panties in an uproar about it. It's really isn't affecting that many people. At least I haven't seen it. I don't know maybe I'm I've been living a you know, uh, sheltered life by you know just living a regular life. But I don't know. Well, Harry, listen, uh, I, I, uh, go ahead and yeah. finish. We're up against a break. I just, uh, like I say, I hope hope I try to make you know a little bit coherent uh, thought there, but. Uh, Thank you. We hear you. Thanks, Harry. We're up against a break. We'll come right back. We have Drs. Michael Mayer, Mirdad Kia joining us. Uh, This is the KGVO Book Club. We have Mr. Wingnut, who is back. We have uh, several other lines open. If you have a, a question or a comment, we'll be back after this. Okay, we're back on TalkBack. I'm Peter Christian, by the way, back. I was ill for a while, but uh, back on my feet, so thank you for all your good wishes. Uh, Nick Christensen taking your phone calls. Dr. Michael Mayer joining us in the studio. Dr. Mirdad Kia is on the phone. Now, we're talking about a book called Woke Racism, and uh, we always try to take our, our, our new callers first. So, Emmett, you are up. Go ahead, sir. Oh, thanks for taking my call. I'm glad TalkBack is back on, but... 
Um, yeah, talk about this whole censorship on campus. I mean, hate to say this. I'm grateful I never went to college because I've always been afraid of this, you know, cancel culture on college. You know, I may be an independent, but I would have a right to say I stand up for Trump, Donald Trump, because he's pro-life. Here's why I support the border wall. It's not racist or, you know, whatever, or I have a right to disagree with the professor and say, no, this is why I disagree with you. Here are my conservative viewpoints as a conservative or whatever, and take a few liberal ones and debate with having the cops called, you know, the local campus cops called on me into the classroom and have a little chat with me or whatever, or, you know, be, you know, have to go to the dean and have for disciplinary actions because I disagree with the professor. I would want to be able to express everything. Like, I don't agree with gay marriage. I think homosexual sex, you know, is a sin because I'm a Roman Catholic. Here's why I believe in God and the Bible. I hope that the dean can encourage, or someone at this campus can encourage freedom of speech and the First Amendment and say, Catholic conservatives have a right to be at, okay. on campus and debate with the professor. So, let's, let's let them answer that question. Thank, thanks for your call, Harry. Appreciate it. Uh, the, the last two callers have raised some really important points. Um, in, in, Har- in Harry's case, uh, certainly you know, World War I, he's, he's referred to that before, uh, where there were uh, horrendous abuses of civil liberties and particularly free speech. That's where the modern doctrine of free speech in the, in the courts came from, is, is adjudicating the Wilson administration's attempt to suppress radicals and anti-war um, activists. Uh, but I th- uh, again, it doesn't make it right now, and I think it's a point that's easy to miss. And his argument that this is only on college campus, I think, is, is, is simply um, mistaken. Uh, the, uh, look at what happened to Andrew Sullivan, a very fine journalist who was hounded out of his job. Barry Weiss, who was hounded, hounded out of the New York Times um, for that. So it's not just on college campuses. It's, it, it's in the media, and it's not just Hollywood. It's in the media. It's, it's in other places and, and as in my well. View, it, it, and this is just my opinion. That's dangerous. Of course it is. So, um, yeah. it, and it, it, it really is. But getting back to the point, uh, Emmett's point, um, again, it's an interesting argument. It's not new. If anyone wants to see a similar argument in a curious way, look at William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale, in which he argues the same thing, that, that um, Yale was not receptive. It, it, it was a little different back then because uh, Buckley argued that the religion, which uh, was, was, was a requirement that people take a course in religion, but e- either in sociology or psychology or, or even in the religion department, was pretty much anti-religion. Um, and that uh, he also argued that all the uh, economics courses were taught from a Keynesian perspective, none from um, uh, either a monetarist or, or um, Austrian school or anything else. And uh, he, had, he had a point then. But I, I think the, uh, Buckley was roundly criticized, but nobody hounded him off of campus, which you, which you do see these days. Let's get, well, I mean, uh, oh, go ahead. Um, you know, I have to say this, you know, I disagree with 99.99% of what Emmett said in terms of, you know, uh, what he believes in and so on and so forth. But I think we have to have an atmosphere that whether it's Emmett or, you know, Joe and John and Jackie and, you know, uh, Lisa, you know, whoever they are and uh, whatever ideas or beliefs they have, they must have the freedom to express it and put it into a debate and discussion. That's what that's what we uh, that's what I believe in, you know. And and I have to say this, you know. I as uh, you know, I I I, I come from 
society uh, where uh, basically a gang of uh, religious fascists uh, have hijacked the entire country and have prohibited any discussion of any ideas, any institutions in the name of religion. Uh, and I give myself the right, therefore, to be very critical of a ruling establishment in uh, a country called Iran for imposing the most totalitarian systems that that country has uh, seen in its long history. Now, uh, if I want to speak about that, I, I also have to include a critique of Islam as a religion, which has the potential to give birth to this kind of totalitarianism and fascism. Now, am I allowed to speak about it, or is it going to be Islamophobic? Do you see what the problem is? That once you start saying, no, that part of it cannot be expressed, well, we are in a, in a, in a, in a big issue. I think we have to be able to speak about it, and if somebody's sensitivity is hurt, damaged, uh, and uh, and uh, finds it appalling, come back and debate it, argue back, talk about it. Um, I have had this discussion with folks who are very adamant about the validity uh, and the totality of Islam. And I do not, of course, spouse to that, and I find a lot of problems in the teachings of Islam that uh, have resulted into creation of political systems and organizations. You see it all around the world, not only in Iran, but in Al-Qaeda. You see it in Taliban. You see it in Hezbollah in Lebanon. You see it in Hamas in uh, Gaza Strip. Now, what do I do? I shouldn't talk about it because somebody with devout Islamic ideas will feel offended. Well, that's, that's too bad. You know, I have to speak about the reality, and the reality tells me that criticism of Islam should be an open book, and everybody should be able to exercise it. Yeah, that's exactly right, and I think also we, we need to keep in mind that um, Christianity can, can go that way, too. Think of the Spanish Inquisition. Right. Um, and exactly. uh, religion it can be a force for good, it can be a force for evil, um, and uh, we, we need to be able to discuss these things openly and honestly and without... Um, being silenced or without being intimidated. Gentlemen, we're up against our last break. We're going to come right back. We have Candy and Mr. Wingnut, uh, who is still waiting uh, to, for another point. We're going to come right back in one minute. And we certainly mean that. You better believe it. All right, let's so uh, let's continue. Uh, we are running out of time. Uh, we have uh, Candy's been waiting the longest. Thank you for your patience, Candy. Go ahead. Thank you. I wanted to go back to the caller uh, with the accusation of piety. I took it as an accusation, okay, in my opinion. Need we forget that this country was founded on a creator God and Christianity? Now, I believe... Christianity to be a personal relationship between Jesus Christ and myself. So I don't get the piety aspect of this. And uh, i just throwing that out there because uh, this nation is stood for something, and that was freedom in liberty. And that freedom in liberty was given to us by 
our Creator and our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you can comment on that, I would appreciate it. Okay, thanks, for, th- thanks for the call. Uh, just real quickly, I looked up the uh, Webster definition of piety. It is the quality of being religious or reverent. So go ahead. Right, and I, th- I think... I, I, I don't want to speak for um, Wingnut, but I think his point was sort of public, um, ostentatious piety, not right. not actual, you know, faith. Person, personal piety. Yeah, right. e- e- exactly. And um, and and that that goes back, and it, it goes back, I think, in all these discussions. And this is unfortunately not as true on college campuses as it should be. Uh, there needs to be respect uh, for all opinions. And those opinions need to be expressed. And uh, as, as has been said since the early 20th century, uh, one of the, the Supreme Court justices, the remedy for bad speech is more and better speech. You're not. Yeah, no, I, 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 and I think, uh, just building on what Mike just said, I think, you know, we are constantly told, you know, how great diversity is. I am, uh, of course, a huge advocate and supporter of diversity. But that diversity includes diversity of thought, opinion, sentiments. Also, it is very cheap to talk about diversity. You know, look at the University of Montana, for example, and ask yourself how many people of, quote-unquote, non-white origin are sitting in Main Hall now, right? So we, we, we get all sorts of, you know, uh, all sorts of memos about how great diversity is, but it is one thing to th- talk about it, it's another to act it, right? To diversify in a real sense. Empowerment means you recruit people who come from different cultures, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, also come from different thought processes and education and opinions. And this is the thing. I think once it becomes just a, uh, you know, a, a sort of, it's beautiful to say it, and we are now all so PC, so politically correct. But it's another to actually enact it, implement it, practice it. And uh, I think we need more action in that, in fact, if we really want the real diversity. Real diversity is diversity of opinion and diversity of cultures, diversity of different groups, and so on and so forth. And then not pick and choose that one group is actually more superior to another. Uh, uh, diversity must be applied to all groups, religious, ethnic, racial, thought, uh, so on and so forth. And I think in that, we, we have a long way to go still. Well, gentlemen, we are we are at a kind of a transition point here. We have exactly two minutes before we're we're, we're done with our show, and we'd like to give that to our hosts uh, to prepare for the next program. So, Wingnut, I humbly apologize. We're not going to be able to get your comment in. Uh, but, gentlemen, um, let's wrap this up and then look forward to the next uh, book club. Good. Well, first of all, welcome back, Peter. Good, good to you. see you up and about. Thank you. And... Um, the next book we're going to be talking about is a book by Nicholas Eberstadt, E-B-E-R-S-T-A-D-T. Its title is Men Without Work, and we're, we'll be looking at the new post-COVID edition. It originally came wow. out in 2016, and it's about the large percentage of men in our population who are not working and the, the, the social consequences of that. Um, and I'll, I'll just give the rest to Meridad. Meridad, you're up. No, I, I. First of all, I want to tell. I want to say how good it is to have um, um, our very good Peter Christian back. Uh, it's wonderful having your voice back on the radio, 
and having you back in the studio. Uh, so um, um, it, it's wonderful to see you back well and healthy. Uh, the other uh, issue is that th- th- this book, which I still need to read, the book that Mike just mentioned, uh, it comes uh, at a very critical time because we see the impact of COVID on the labor force, on the economy. And I think it's a timely reading uh, for, for those of you who are interested to look at the impact of this deadly disease on our society. You bet. Gentlemen, I want to say thank you uh, for, yet for a, a fascinating conversation, and thanks for all the callers who, uh, who joined us and all you who listened. We appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, Nick, what's coming up on tomorrow's fabulous radio program? Uh, we're going to talk with chair of the Montana Democratic Party, Robin Driscoll, 830 to 9, uh, 9 to 9.30, hopefully Montana GOP Chairman Don Kay. And then Commissioner Troy Downing from 9.30 to 10, hopefully. All right. So I want to say thank you again to everybody. It's been a great welcome back. Uh, I am back on my feet. Uh, so uh, for all of your thoughts, prayers, wishes, you know, pats on the head, whatever, uh, you guys get out there and make it a great day. Remember, we've got some nasty weather coming up in the next few days. So let's all be ready. Have a great day. See you tomorrow morning at 6 for Montana Morning.